So this morning we are uh, looking at, at Luke chapter 16 and um, a big topic, uh, we're talking about the topic of hell, um, which uh, I think this is my first sermon on hell, uh, so uh, here we go. Um, <laughs> uh, welcome if you're visiting, um, <laughs> glad to have you this, this morning. Um, so this is Luke chapter 16, but I just want to say that this is God's word to you. Uh, Because you're his people and because he loves you. So hear God's word. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus In like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the honesty of our Lord Jesus who does not seek to please man, but speaks the truth in love. We ask that you give us tender and open hearts, and that even as we study uh, the horror of hell, that it would drive us to Jesus, in whom are all the riches uh, of the love of God, and all the grace of God is poured out to us in him. So we pray that you would use this text to build up our faith, And that we would give more thanks for the gospel. And that we would give more thanks for your grace that you show to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we are, we're talking uh, this morning about probably the the most difficult, kind of horrifying, probably the most criticized doctrine that Christians believe, that Christians have always believed. Uh, it's It's a doctrine of hell. And uh, the doctrine of hell says that every single human being that has ever lived, that ever will live, uh, at the end of history, they're going to have, they're going to end up in one of uh, two states. Um, They're either going to spend eternity in conscious delight in the presence of God, glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Or uh, they're going to spend eternity in conscious torment in hell. Let me just tell you that if you even just hearing me say that, if that makes your blood 
cold and is horrifying to you, that's the proper response. Uh, you should never be comfortable with uh, the doctrine of hell. And in fact, uh, Ezekiel 18 says, um, uh, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? God does not, it's not something that excites him. It's, not, it's something that grieves him. Uh, the whole idea of, of judgment and hell. But, but even uh, that fact, for some of you, it's even deeper than that. Because for many of us, we come here, we just sang about how deep the Father's love for us. That's the God that we worship. is uh, this Father that we adore who loves us. And we say, how could that God who's so overflowing with love send any human being to hell? How could that ever happen? And, and, and even more than that, we might say, you know, Christians say, uh, it's, how, do you, how do you escape hell? How are you saved from hell? Is by believing in Jesus. And they say, ah, that seems so arbitrary. Something so big as an eternal destination. And it's just this, this if you happen to believe this one thing, um, if you intellectually happen to agree with this, then you get saved from it. I mean, it seems so so arbitrary. Why just this one little belief on, over something so huge? And so that even, you know, I, I didn't live 100 years ago, uh, but my impression is that, that 100 years ago, that there were many people that were criticizing, uh, modern people who were criticizing Christianity. And the big criticisms they had mainly were about issues of science. So they were saying things like, you know, Jesus couldn't have been born of a virgin, or he couldn't have done miracles, or he couldn't have risen from the dead. You know, we're modern people. We can't believe in the miraculous. The miraculous, because many people still believe in judgment, that God was a judge. But, they, but it was miraculous. It was a problem. I think now in Bellingham, in a place like Bellingham, in a more postmodern setting, I, I mean, I experienced this in my generation. I think people are more, yeah, I think God could do a miracle. I'm, I'm, I don't see why God couldn't do that. The, the issue that people have with Christianity is its exclusivity. That uh, the idea that you believe what we believe or you're going to go to hell. That's the thing that's the most troubling, uh, I think, in the context that we're living in. And probably the most troubling for some of you. For many, maybe many of you. And, uh, and in fact, uh, David, David Bazan, who, uh, he, he's a, the, he had a band called Pedro the Lion. Which is, he, he was known as kind of this Christian musician who was doing very well in uh, the secular world and, uh, and he often s sang about the Lord and, and Christian themes kind of came out in his music. And recently, I, I'm, I'm not, I think in the last couple of years, he's left his Christian faith and his most recent album is kind of a tirade against God. It's kind of his um, lashing out. But, you know, by the way, I should say that some of you might listen to David Zahn. I, I just want to say that if, you, if you're listening to what he's saying, don't just listen to it kind of gingerly as like, wow, this is catchy music that I like to listen to. This, this music is a challenge. He is challenging the faith that he came out of. And you can't kind of uncritically just take it in and, and dance with the kid to it, you know. Uh, there's a challenge. We need to be ready for that. And uh, in fact, he has one song. Uh, it's called uh, When We Fell. It's basically... He's basically accusing God that the, the reason for sin and fallenness in the world and everything that's bad in the world is God's fault. Why did he let it happen? And I'm just going to read you a few of the words. With the threat of hell hanging over my head like a halo, I was made to believe in a couple of beautiful truths. That everything uh, had the effect... Oh, I, I was made to believe in a couple of beautiful truths that eventually had the effect of completely unraveling the powerful curse 
you put, put on me by you. So he's talking to God. When you set the table, when you chose the scale, did you write a riddle that you knew they would fail? Did you make them tremble so they would tell the tale? Did you push us when we fell? If my mother cries when I tell her what I've discovered, so he's discovered that Christianity is not true, that's his discovery, then I hope she remembers she taught me to follow my heart. And if you bully her like you've done me with the fear of damnation, then I hope she can see you for what you are. And I think it's that last line this, uh, that makes talking about hell very difficult is that most people say it's a way of bullying people if you talk about hell. You're using fear tactics, fear of eternal torment to get control of people. And the fact is, the thing that's hard is David Zahn's right. <laughs> I mean, that does happen. I mean, some of you maybe grew up in the church and... You know, every night, every day, there's this flux of, am I going to hell, am I not going to hell, and tormented by fear of what's going to happen to me. Is God going to throw me? Is God angry with me? And, you know, it's true that there are pastors who will say things like, you leave my church, you're disobeying God, and you're going to go to hell. Deeply manipulative. There is a bullying that can happen that goes on with hell, that comes along with talking about hell. But on the other hand, to say that any um, mention of the reality of hell is bullying, is impossible. We have to talk about it. I mean, you know how it is. I mean, if, if someone's walking out in the street and a semi-truck's coming, you don't say, I don't want to bully them into getting out of the road. You've you got to say something. That's your, if you're loving them, you have to say something. And if hell is real, we've got to say something about it. We've got to say stop. We gotta, you have to give a warning. And so what I want to tell you is that it is because I love you that I'm going to tell you that hell is very real. Hell is a reality. And, uh, and it, your existence hangs on one moment of ultimacy where you stand before God and your eternal destination will be to be with God forever or to not be with him forever. It will be one or the other. That's what we're all facing, an ultimate uh, decision. And, as, and so it's important that as we look at this passage, this is Jesus talking in, this, in this, uh, this parable. And almost everything that we know about hell comes from the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Actually, you know, may, there's, uh, it, there's not a shred of evidence that the early church inserted the doctrines of hell into the teaching of Jesus uh, to serve their political ends or, or to gain power. There's not a shred of evidence. If, if anything, it's the opposite. The early church shied away from talking about hell. You know, you read the, the writings of the Apostle Paul. There's hardly any even allusion to hell in it. It's Jesus is the one who's talking about it. And so we're going to learn from him. And you see here that in verse 22, I'm going to read it again. The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am anguish, in anguish in this flame. So this is the worldview of Jesus Christ. We're being taught by Jesus himself. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this text together and show you that, um, first of all, Jesus, Jesus is very clear about hell. 
but also that the whole idea of hell and fire and uh, all that is actually, it's not as primitive as a belief as you might think it is. And I want to kind of tie it, almost to look at the kind of psychology of, of people in hell and to see that that kind of, the, the mindset that people have in hell is a mindset that we see all over the place in everyday life. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to make five observations about qualities of people in hell. And as a result, I want to just lead us to Jesus and the hope of the, the good news of the gospel, the free grace of the gospel. So, um, so five things about people in hell, and I'll just list them as we go. The first is this, is that people in hell, people in hell sin by omission. People in hell sin by omission. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Historically, uh, Christians have said that there are basically two ways to disobey God. There are sins of commission, sins that you commit. There's something that you're not supposed to do and you did it. You know, you're not supposed to steal and you committed a sin and you, and you stole. It's something you do. But there's another way to disobey God, which is sins of omission, where there, there's something omitted from your life, something that you didn't do, something that God had called you to that was missing. And almost always, when Jesus is talking about people in hell, what he points out is not so much sins that they were doing, but things, something that was absent from their life, something that was missing. And uh, actually, in, in Matthew 25, Matthew 25 is a, kind of a famous parable where Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. And it's this picture of the judgment day, and he's separating the sheep and the goats. And, uh, and what he says in there um, uh, uh, as, as he's separating the goats, he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and the angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. And so he goes on. And so he wasn't judging the goats for saying, you know, you, you slept around, and you did drugs, and you lied to people, you committed all these sins. That's not, not that those things aren't bad, but those weren't the things he was pointing out. He's more pointing out there was something absent in your life. That's the main thing that Jesus points out. There was something missing. And the reason for that is because the Bible is filled with God making provision for our sins. That uh, he provides a way to... The the Bible is saying over and over again that God is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He will forgive your sins. And so that's why when Jesus comes, the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they're all coming to him. They're drawing near to him. They're flocking to him. It's because for sinful people... God has grace to them. He receives them in love. And so it's not for committing sins. But you see here in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate there laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Uh, The rich man is not described as doing bad things. It's that there uh, there was something of deep, importance that was omitted, that was absent from his life. And the thing that was missing was that his heart had not been touched by grace. He didn't understand grace. And that's the big thing. Um, uh, What grace is, grace is unearned favor. It's saying that I, I cannot work for God. I cannot, uh, I cannot do good de- deeds so that God is, I got God in a headlock and he owes me things. I can't do that. Everything I have comes by free grace from God, whether it's my food, my kids, my family, whether it's his forgiveness, whether it's his acceptance. It's everything God gives to me freely. 
And the thing that, uh, that is missing from this man, uh, you know, every, uh, I should say this, that, that grace is really the distinguishing thing about Christianity. If you look at any other religion, uh, Eastern religions, Eastern religions are about disciplining yourself so that you can attain higher levels of, of spiritual attainment until you finally reach a state of nirvana. And uh, it, it's about you working and disciplining yourself. I mean, that's what Islam, Islam is about keeping the five pillars, uh, doing good things and obeying God. Uh, you know, even a kind of Oprah spirituality. Oprah says you've got to visualize a successful life and, and create your own reality. It's all about you doing work and being rewarded for the work that you do. And that is the opposite of grace. And the thing that's missing in this man's life um, is grace. And the difference between people in hell and the people in heaven is that people in hell say, I want my life. I want my rights. I don't want any handouts. I want to be my own person. And I don't want, I don't want anyone stepping on my toes, getting in my way. I want my own life. And, and that's what hell is. It's saying, okay, you can have that. And people in heaven say, everything I have is pure grace from God. That is the dominant heart of someone that's in heaven, is someone whose heart has been touched by grace. That's what it means to, to be with God and to be his presence. That, that's the big difference. And you can see that because this rich man, if, if your heart says, everything I have is free grace, God forgives me by free grace, he forgives my sins. If that's the dominant note in your heart, and you walk by a guy who's disabled, and he's got dogs licking his boils, and he's hungry, you can't just walk by that every day. Because you're going to say, look at me, I need grace. I know that to make it in this world, you need grace. I know that to make it in God's world, you need grace. And you can't just walk by that. And so there was something that was missing in this rich man's life that his heart had been not, not been touched by grace. And that's the foundation of the difference between heaven and hell is do you know the grace of God? Do you know that you can't earn God's favor? Do you know that everything you have, God of his own accord said he wanted to give to you? And even salvation, that's the dominant note. Now, the other things kind of flow out of that. So, first observation about people in hell is they sin by omission. There's something missing. Second, people in hell are unrepentant. People in hell are unrepentant. Now, often we think about the images when we think about God sending someone to hell. Is we think about someone saying, oh, no, I'm going, you know, they're falling down into the fire and they're screaming out and like, oh, I'm sorry, give me one more chance. I wish I hadn't done it. And, uh, and there's this sorrow and it's like, no, it's too late. Stay down there. And there's, they really are now softened by the, God's judgment and, and now they're pleading with it for a second chance and God won't give it to them. Well, um, Jesus gives a very different picture here um, of, of what someone is like in hell. And you look at verse, verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out. Now, if this rich man was in hell and he was like, wow, I really blew it. I was a bad person. I wish I'd, been, I wish I'd made different choices. And, and now he has a chance. He's going to call out. He sees Lazarus and Abraham. And he's really sorry. What would he say? He'd say, Lazarus, I walk by you every day, and I can't believe I was such a fool, and I, I should have helped you. I had plenty of food. I should have helped you. I'm sorry, right? There's Lazarus right there. Here's his, here's his shot. That's what a repentant heart would look like. But look at what he says instead. 
Father Abraham, he speaks to Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish and flame. Can you imagine? Here's a rich guy. He's been sent to hell. And he's telling, hey, Abraham, can you tell my water boy to get down here? I'm, you know, he's still living in his rich illusion of entitlement that everyone owes him things, that he's done nothing wrong. He's still full of pride and, and a hard heart. And he's telling Lazarus, the poor man, he still should be serving him and waiting on him. Their roles have been switched. The judgment has come and his heart is still hard. He's completely unrepentant and he has a, uh, this tremendous amount um, of entitlement and self-pity and pride. People in hell are unrepentant and they refuse to admit um, that there's anything wrong with them. Now, uh, you, might, you might think, okay, how can that be? Someone is in uncomfortable, they're, they're in a time of torment, how could they continue to think there's nothing wrong with them and it's everyone else's fault and, and continue to isolate themselves and be unrepentant? How could that be? Well, let me, I'm going to give you an, an immediate personal example of, of a, a taste of what this is. This, this is just last night. I'm, uh, we, Shannon and I, we both had kind of a long day. I'm writing my sermon and uh, Shannon's taking care of the kids. She's doing work in the yard and she's just recently been telling me that, you know, I really would like to get the dishes all clean before we go to bed, so that, because it's a big hassle when I wake up in the morning and I got dirty dishes, and, um, and I'm, uh, so, we're getting ready to bed, we, I put the kids to bed, and there's still a bunch of dishes done, and I'm, there I am lying on the couch, and I'm doing this, and I know, I know, there's Shannon doing the dishes, and I'm sitting there, I'm watching the government channel, uh, it's Bellingham City Council talking about something. It's really, it's, it was important. And, um, and I'm sitting there. I know, I know that I should be helping her do the dishes. And she's doing them uh, quietly. I don't know what she's thinking internally. But I'm, I'm sitting there, and this sense of guilt comes over me that I know I'm doing something wrong. Now, what happens when that sense of guilt comes over us? It's amazing. M- what happens in my mind? I start thinking about all the bad things about Shannon. She's doing this on purpose. She's, she's, trying to, she's trying to make me feel bad. She doesn't know how hard I worked on my sermon today, uh, right? I've been working, and I put the kids to bed, and I'm getting mad at her because of something that I'm doing. I'm the one who's not helping. It's an amazing thing, and, and what's happening is there's this, what we do is that when we, when guilt comes over us, our nature is to try to justify ourselves. And we begin to, because we feel that sense of guilt, we begin blame, blame shifting and blaming other people and saying it's their fault. And we get mad at people who've done nothing wrong. And we isolate ourselves. I don't want to talk, I don't want to talk to her. I want to watch the government channel. And I, she can do the dishes. And, you know, it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't until I realized I was going to be using this in my sermon that I got out. I was like, I better get up. I'm going to be talking about this in my sermon. So I better get up and help her. And, uh, and I realized, uh, but that's exactly what happens in hell is all the guilt comes of, of, of that we have rebelled against God, and someone is, 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 all the guilt is there, and what happens is they go into eternity of blame shifting and deeper isolation. Actually, one of the amazing things you see about hell uh, right from the beginning, Lazarus goes into heaven. The first thing, there's angels around him. He goes, it says he goes into um, Abraham's bosom, is the, literally what it says. There's relationship, and the rich man is in hell and he's alone. And you know what? He doesn't want relationship. 
He doesn't want to be reconciled to Lazarus. He wants to be waited on. And uh, that's, let me tell you, it's very possible that someone, God's judgment could come on someone and they could even get harder and isolate themselves more. And that's, what, that's the picture that Jesus gives um, of hell. And this is, you can really see that uh, this is the opposite of grace. Self-justification saying, you know, I, I did my sermon, I'm, I put the kids to bed, I did all these things. That's me saying, I don't need grace. That's, I've, I've worked, I've done good things, and it isolates, me from, it isolates us from other people. But grace is the opposite. I, grace brings us close. Grace causes us to forgive people and to move towards one another. And so hell is the opposite of that. So hell, um, people in hell are, are, are unrepentant. Next, people in hell don't want to leave. People in hell don't want to leave hell. Okay? Um, now, this passage doesn't say this direct, directly, but apparently, you know, the rich man is asking Lazarus to come down and be his water boy, get me a glass of water, Lazarus. And, uh, and so apparently he thinks you can kind of move back and forth from heaven, heaven and hell. And his preference is, I'd rather, I don't have any interest in being up there with you guys, but I am interested in Lazarus coming down and waiting on me. So he thinks that, there, that you could move back and forth, but he doesn't want it. He's not interested, he, he's, he's, he doesn't like hell, but he's not interested in the other option either. Um, what is offered in heaven is uh, something he's not interested in. And that, um, that might sound unbelievable to you, that someone be, would be unwilling, you know, that they're unwilling to leave hell. People in hell uh, don't want to leave. But the fact is that we all know people like that. The world is full of people who have a, a life that isolates them for relationships. They don't reach out for, for relationships. They don't uh, try to get help. Um, and their life's miserable. And they just stay in it. They, instead of taking the steps to humble themselves, to ask for help, um, to invite someone else into their life, they don't want to do that. And they just continue on and saying, um, I'd rather stay in my state of misery than humble myself and do that. And, and the world is full of that. And, uh, and the fact is that heaven... The other option is a, is a life glorifying and enjoying God forever. Being in his presence, being with God, and all the goodness, it's a life of grace. It's enjoying grace for eternity. And if you don't want grace, then you don't want the other option from hell. So th- that's why people in hell, they don't want to leave. And, la- and, and the rich man didn't want to leave. And uh, I, you know, there, there's an interesting book that I read a couple of years ago uh, called, uh, by a guy named Nathan Wilson called Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl. And he has this, he describes this conversation he had in graduate school. He was with some of the other graduate students, and they, they were at this pub and talking together. And it, this, is, this is how it reads. My Catholic friend was talking about professors. An atheist was complaining about parking. Another atheist, a girl, was sitting thoughtfully staring at us, at the believers, outed in various seminar discussions. When the conversation lagged, she asked her question, do you think I'm going to hell? Yes, my Catholic friend said without hesitation. He looked around. I do. People laughed, not because it was a joke, but because he was serious and unembarrassed. He was never embarrassed, an attribute I admired. She looked at me and leaned forward, waiting for the Protestant version. I don't know, I said. Don't you want to? What do you mean? She made an excellent questioning face, cocked head and eyebrows behind glasses, it was perfect for the classroom. Why would I want to go to hell? 
God is who he is. Do you want to be with him? That's a question. The, op- the, the other option from hell is being in God's presence forever, forever and glorifying him. If you don't want that, that's what hell is. And people who reject, spend their whole life rejecting God, that's not what they want. They don't want to be with God. And actually, I printed for you a famous quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Great Divorce, on page three of your bulletin. And you can uh, turn there. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. So people in hell don't want to leave. But I should also say that there's a little more to that, and this is maybe the next thing, is that, um, that they also can't leave. So uh, Jesus seems to point out that it, um, and this is the fourth thing, is that people in hell, hell are there permanently. And uh, by the way, you know, I should mention that right now the, the, the question of hell is a big topic in the church. That's why I'm kind of being a little bit thorough and, and spending a lot of time on this. Uh, Time Magazine just had a cover article about hell. There's been a number of books that have been written recently about hell. So, so that's why I'm kind of uh, going through this carefully, and I want to um, spell out clearly what Jesus says. But this fourth thing is that um, people in hell are there permanently. And you see, uh, you see what it says there in verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So this is Jesus' teaching on hell, is uh, that between heaven and hell there's no going back and forth. And um, I would say that this is an aspect of hell that is uh, very troubling to people. And one of the big arguments against this is saying this, this, this doesn't make sense because, you know, you're, people live their life and they do sins and they disobey God, but these are finite sins. They're finite things. How can it be that the consequences of punishment for finite sins is an infinite punishment, right? That seems the balances aren't, it, it should be a finite punishment for finite sins. And, um, and in fact, one of the, uh, the main um, ways that this has been, uh, remedies for this question has been something called annihilationism, which is uh, uh, the idea that um, actually people don't go into eternal conscious torment in hell, but, uh, but after people die, they, they, they pay for their sins, and then after they, once they've paid for all their sins, then they simply cease to exist, and uh, they're annihilated. And there's just no more of them. And uh, let me just give you a few reasons why I think this is unbiblical. Um, The first is this. Jesus says clearly in in Matthew 25, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire. I know know this fire. I'm going to come back to the fire stuff, so just bear with me for a minute. Um, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go into eternal punishment. So that's what Jesus says, is that punishment is eternal. Uh, And then he describes what eternal means. This is in Revelation 20. The The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, 
and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, I know it's, I know it's gruesome, but that's what Jesus says. That's what the Bible teaches clearly, is that it, it is eternal as a day and night forever. And, um, and the other problem with an, uh, the annihilationist view is this, is if someone, let's say they, uh, they are paying for their sins. They die, they pay for their sins, and then they cease to exist. One question is, if they paid for their sins, why did they stop existing? Why didn't they get to go to heaven at that point? If you've paid for your sins, then they're paid for, and you, get, you should be led into heaven. So why the added, now you are annihilated, kind of cherry on the, on the Sunday kind of thing? Uh, that, that doesn't work either. But I think um, the third reason is this, is, um, and I want to talk about this idea of finite sins with infinite punishment. How does that work? There are some sins that we do in our life that are finite, and there's a kind of a finite retribution, right? If you steal someone, steal something from someone, you can pay them back, and then you, you know, add something on top to, to make up for the, the pain or, you know, the, the having to, the person had to deal with you, you know, whatever, you can make retribution for it. But there are other kinds of sins that have a permanent consequence to them, right? So that, for example, if, you, uh, if you're in a marriage and uh, you commit adultery and you, uh, it's, it, it, that ruins your marriage and you get a divorce, what happened was, even though that was a finite sin that you did, the result of it was a permanent separation. It was a permanent severing, Right? And so uh, it's not so much that you're paying an eternal punishment, but it's, it, it, it's, it, it, the marriage has been, is over, and there's no going back. I mean, you, you, know, you may go back and, and, and get remarried, but the point is that a finite sin had a permanent consequence. And that's actually much more what's happening in hell, is, is that God is giving us all this time. He's saying, come to me. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know with you. Live in my presence. Humble yourself. Con- uh, confess your sin. And if we don't do that, there's a, there's a point where the divorce happens. And there's a, a permanent separation. The relationship has been severed. And that, that, that's really what, he, what hell is about, is it's a permanent separation. Now, okay, what about the fire? Um, let, this is going to be my last, my last, my fifth thing, observation about people in hell. There's actually more in this passage, but I, I didn't want to too much, too much hell for one day. Um, Okay, uh, people in, uh, the fifth thing is that people in hell are disintegrating. People in hell are disintegrating. Um, now, Christians throughout history have kind of disagreed, is, is that fire in hell, is that literal fire, or is, it a, is that figurative? And uh, I tend to think it's a fi- you know, figurative image. Whatever it really is, is, is likely worse than fire. So, you know, the getting by the fire doesn't help. Um, but I, I don't think we should just scrap the fire image um, because I think it, it tells some about us. You can even see in verse 5 here that, that, that the rich man says, I am anguish in anguish in this flame. And uh, uh, Tim Keller says this about it. A common image of hell in the Bible is that of fire. Fire disintegrates. Even in this life, we can see the kind of soul disintegration that self-centeredness creates. We know how selfishness and self-absorption leads to piercing bitterness, nauseating envy, paralyzing anxiety, paranoid thoughts, and the mental denials and distortions that accompany them. Now ask the question, what if, we di- what if when we die, we don't end, but spiritually our life extends into eternity? Hell, then, is the trajectory of a soul 
uh, living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. And what he's saying is that if you live a life that's totally self-absorbed, you don't let the grace of God into your life. Grace hasn't touched you. What happens is the image of God in you begins to deteriorate. I mean, if you're self-absorbed, you, you in some ways become less human. There's less color. There's less ability to do all the things that God has made you to do. You become less of who you are. And that's what fire does, is it disintegrates things. It makes it more into a vapor, makes it mo- more like a ghost, ghostly and, and less concrete. And that's what happens to us in hell. You know, one of the problems that we have when we imagine fire and hell and all that, you know, we think of some neighbor or something, like, wow, I'm picturing them bursting in flames, and it's like, ah, that sounds terrible. But the reason is because right now, our neighbors are loaded with dignity, right? God has just poured on them gifts. He, they're good at their jobs. They have families. Um, they're funny. There's so many, so much dignity to them, and that's the thing that's troubling with them is, is people who are dignified suffering, but what happens is when they're severed from God, all the good things about them are God's grace and, and goodness to them. And if they are severed from God, all their dignity is lost. Their humanity is lost. And they begin to lose their humanity. And, and, and their humanity uh, begins uh, to disappear more and more and more. And, you know, we see that happening in people now. This is not just something that happens in eternity. People deteriorate now when they're consumed with self-absorption. And so... Um, the thing is, um, actually, you know, one thing about this that commentators point out is that Lazarus has a name, but the rich man is not named in this parable. He's kind of this nameless. It's uh, actually, it used, it used to be translated, uh, rich man was his name because money was his whole identity. And now that his money's gone, there's nothing left of him. He's just kind of a vapor. There's no identity left. And what happened, and the thing is, the thing about the gospel when, we, when our hearts are touched by grace and we say, God, I want to be yours. I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need your forgiveness. I know I need you in my life. I know I fall short. What God does is he comes in and, and instead of us dis- deteriorating, we become more real. We become more textured. We become more colorful. We become more alive. And that's what, the, that's what the hope of the gospel is, is we draw closer to God. All the grace and the goodness, the things that he's pouring out on our neighbor, he just increases more and more and makes us into who we were meant to be. And you know what? You don't have to work for that. It's something that comes by free grace. And one of the things that we have to talk about, you know, when we talk about hell, it's not, you know, sometimes we think, oh, God is up in hell kind of, or is up in heaven indifferently sending people to hell, and you go to hell, you go to hell. That is not the picture of the gospel, the picture of the Bible. Because in the Bible, it says that God himself came down as a man in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was thirsting like the rich man in hell. God for, he was forsaken by God on the cross. Uh, it, darkness came over. Uh, judgment day happened. All of the wrath of God was poured on Jesus. God is not sitting indifferent and, se- and, and separate from hell. He went into hell. And so that what that means is that in Jesus, you know what? You don't have to work your way up to heaven. You don't have to try harder. Jesus is not showing you the way to heaven. He's not doing that. Uh, you know, Buddha might show you the way to nirvana. Jesus is not showing you the way to heaven. He is the way. You just believe. You just rest in him, and it's a free gift. 
And the big question about uh, whether hell is for you or heaven for you is are you willing, are you, do you have the humility, do you have the softness of heart to receive the free gift? And God wants to give that to you in just the same way that hell is permanent. God's grace is permanent. Your, your sin can't screw it up. Your failures can't screw it up. And you, he is sealing you, and he wants to give that to you. He invites you to come. And just as hell is, is an eternity of, of conscious torment, what God wants for us, what God wants for you is an eternity of conscious, living, colorful, real, alive, growing joy, just drinking deeply, drenched in joy in the presence of God and being with him. That's what he has for you. That's what he has in the gospel. And all you need, it's not something you work for. It's a free gift. Do you have the softness of heart to accept it? And uh, is your heart willing to be touched by grace? Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for these hard words. Would you give us a horror at being separated from you? And would it just uh, fling us into your arms? And that we would look forward uh, to being with you uh, for endless ages. And uh, give us soft hearts that we would be touched by your grace. And uh, may your spirit be working in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.